think infinitum's vow of mission, it's the doing. It's the action that comes after the uh, surrendering and understanding generosity. Mission is how we take action and move forward with it. It's how we bring the kingdom here on earth. I think mission is the overflow of a heart that has truly encountered the work of Jesus on the cross. Because when you grasp that at the cross Jesus dealt with all your sin and all the brokenness that comes from that sin, you begin to realize that you are called not only to be a recipient of grace and restoration, but a messenger and a deliverer of it. And the picture I have is um, with the father with his arms open up wide and the child running to the father. Our mission comes from Jesus' great commission in Matthew 28, 18-20. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I am with you always. Yeah, that vow is enacting or bringing God's kingdom into a world that is so hungry. Uh, and bringing a message of hope and life into a world that actually is dying. It's, it's, a, it's a vow that really has to begin uh, in the very inner parts of our being. Uh, actually, it was once Leslie Newbigin who said, mission begins with an explosion of joy. And, uh, and, that, and that, that, that vow is actually rooted in what God has done and given us, and we bring that into the world. Mission is vital for me because it stops my life being just about me. Instead, it joins me with God's broader, better, wider purposes for the whole of this world. And because brokenness can take a thousand forms, mission has to take a thousand forms. But at the center of it all is the work of Jesus on the cross. I believe missions. It's about bringing Jesus and his truth to wherever we are. Um, I think it's not only about going into different nations. Um, it's about being salt and light in our neighborhood, in our city, in our workplace. Um, if we have a calling to be an artist or to be involved with politics, okay, how we can make that our mission field. It is a willingness to share our faith with other people verbally and in practical ways so that everyone can learn the love, faith and power of God themselves. Hi Diamond, it's Gary. Um just wondering, can Hi, we yeah. can we share some of your stories? Is that okay? Oh yeah. I'm I'm more than happy to uh the story to go out to people, so yeah, no problems. The Book of Esther, chapter four, verse fourteen. For if you remain silent of its time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. While I was working in Pakistan um, back in 90s, what I saw was that a lot of children uh, were coming to hospital with uh, uh, infectious and diarrheal diseases. Uh, in those days, the 
infant mortality rate, which is a number of children dying in one year, uh, um, uh, under one year olds, uh, per thousand live births. So that was around uh, 90 plus per 1,000 live births, which meant that out of 10 children born, one would not be alive uh, by his or her first birthday. So I looked further into this and found out there are roughly 14,000 babies born each day in Pakistan. So that's 1,400 babies that would be born each day that wouldn't make it to their first birthday. 1,400. And looking at the reasons why this was happening, a lot of babies were dying because of infectious diseases and diarrheal diseases. And what we identified was that the major factor was um, uh, bottle feeding and uh, the babies who were breastfed were actually uh, more healthy and and they had more resistance to fight uh, infections and they were not getting as much uh, episodes of diarrhea as uh, children who were uh, being fed um, on bottle feed. The families um, did not have access to clean drinking water and and uh, uh, when they were mixing the formula in dirty water that was causing uh, um, diarrheal diseases. Uh, the other issue was that um, uh, the, the formula was quite expensive and people uh, actually had to struggle to buy the formula and what, what, what mums would do was that they would uh, prepare a diluted formula so instead of adding one to one that's uh, taking like um, uh, four ounces of uh, water and adding four scoops of formula they would um, uh, make the formula diluted so in four ounces of water they would just add two scoops of formula so the babies were getting less nutrition and were getting malnourished and again a malnourished child would be more prone to infection and because of a dirty water they'll get more diarrhea and so they would enter a vicious cycle of malnutrition infection more malnutrition more infection and a cycle that sadly made it impossible for the baby to survive seeing was that a lot of these uh, uh, babies was presenting in, in um, hospital at a terminally ill stage and uh, they required a lot of um, uh, support and uh, but many of the, the babies would not make it and, and uh, uh, that was the reason of high uh, mortality rates. Uh, what we uh, realized was that um, uh, some of the formula companies were promoting uh, their um, uh, infant formulas in, in a very unethical way. The way they would do this is um, um, uh, promoting uh, their formula by advertisement and then directly contacting uh, uh, mothers and giving them free samples and uh, so promoting the formula. Others would use um, medical professionals so they would uh, uh, approach pediatricians and uh, what they would do was um, uh, provide uh, gifts to, to pediatricians and in return they would prescribe the formula and to the extent that some of the pediatricians would even uh, say to moms that their uh, breast milk was not right for the baby and uh, the formula was better. So um, this is what was happening and uh, I found it quite um, uh, unethical. 
It's at this point we cut across to Saeed, a man who started working for one of the formula companies in December 1994. It was a dream come true to work for a multinational company and he was quickly indoctrinated into their practice. His job was to promote formula to health workers and he had the tools and training to do so as effectively as possible. This included a fund for paying bribes to doctors and ways to get approval for larger items like air conditioners from senior executives for what they designated AAA doctors, those who had a lot of influence on prescribing practices. One day in March 1997, Saeed was visiting one of the 200 doctors on his regular circuit. He frequently visited this doctor, but this was one of the few who didn't accept the company bribes. It was this visit which became a life-changing moment for himself and possibly hundreds of thousands of lives because the doctor he was visiting that day was Diamond. One day when he was visiting me, I was called in emergency to attend uh, uh, a very dehydrated uh, sick baby who came with uh, diarrhea and he, he was brought in a very terminal stage and uh, despite all the intervention we did, the baby could not survive. This, this um, medical representative from this formula company who's uh, uh, sitting in my office just asked what happened and I was so um, uh, disturbed by everything that happened that I actually said it was uh, people like him and, and the companies who were uh, responsible for a lot of infant deaths because uh, the history was that in this particular baby he was... Um, uh, initially breastfed, but then uh, changed to uh, bottle feeding. And since being on bottle feed, uh, he started having diarrhea and gradually lost weight and uh, ultimately uh, ended up in emergency. It was this moment that shocked and shook Saeed. He had no idea the serious health implications that the promotion of baby powder was causing. As he walked out past the grieving family, back to his own, he realised the injustice of the company's practice. So he resigned from his position and set out producing a legal notice attaching nearly 80 pages of evidence informing the formula company to stop its unethical practices. But such a large battle would not be easily fought. He actually wrote a notice to his company saying that they should uh, stop the unethical marketing of infant formulas and uh, that actually uh, flared up the, the, the company bosses and uh, there was a lot of um, um, uh, back from the company and, and what they did was uh, initially they tried to threaten this young man and uh, uh, and then somehow they knew that I was uh, also supporting it so uh, some members of the, the formula company they actually visited me at my home and they um, threats uh, saying that uh, if, if anything uh, uh, was taken any further there will be uh, difficult times for us. For Saeed this meant he had to leave his house, his family, flee to a different city, a different country and eventually seek asylum in Canada. Same was the issue with me that uh, I also had to kind of uh, leave that city and go to another city to, to continue my practice and uh, uh, ultimately 
things got worse and uh, uh, I also decided to move out of uh, Pakistan and, and uh, come to live here in the UK. So, yeah, it, it, it was a difficult time. Um, and, um, when, when I look back and see at that point uh, whatever I did and the, the, the steps I took, um, I think uh, I, I, I was really not sure how hard it could be. But for me, looking at that, uh, what we call a social injustice, it was hard for me to, to, to stay quiet and not do what I did. Because uh, what I understand as a Christian, this is uh, a very important to, to, to uh, raise your voice whenever you see injustice happening and I was very strongly uh, of the idea that uh, this this uh, was uh, social injustice where people were being forced into doing something which uh, was not right for them and they were being misled and uh, um, and I think uh, uh, at that point uh, if, if I had uh, stayed quiet this this uh, um, would have been uh, kind of uh, uh, it, it, it would have not brought all this out and and uh, people would have continued to be uh, suffering it was a step of incredible bravery and boldness to speak out against the injustice that was taking place and from his bravery word spread to various NGOs and organizations who helped to communicate and share some of the message of what was taking place. Stricter rules and regulations were put in place, and more thorough checks were organised. Now, 20 years on from that significant day, times have changed. I won't say that um, the practice, uh, the unethical practice, uh, totally uh, finished, but uh, it, it did uh, reduce to some extent. Uh, Currently, what I see is um, um, the, uh, when, I, when I go back to Pakistan and visit uh, places, I see that uh, uh, it still goes on, but uh, definitely to a lesser extent. And uh, the infant mortality rate, which was like uh, around uh, uh, 90 plus, uh, uh, has now gone down to between 60 and 70. I mean, it's still very high. I would say it's still very high. But uh, uh, there has been some uh, uh, reduction in, 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 in mortality rate. Now to jump back to the estimates I shared earlier. Of 14,000 babies being born each day in Pakistan, the change in infant mortality rate works out at 450 babies each day. 450 lives every day. Now there are many factors in these changes, but the significance of what has been done through their bravery cannot be understated. That's almost 200,000 children a year, 4 million over the last 20 years. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. What I see is in, 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 in my Christian life that uh, I'm, I'm, I'm more... Uh, of the strong idea that uh, if I see injustice as a Christian, I have to raise my voice and, and uh, even though it, it comes up with a lot of difficulties, still the, the satisfaction is there that uh, you have done what is right. Just wow. Um, 
Um, I presume you haven't heard that story before. And if so, I wouldn't be surprised because <laughs> I just can't communicate enough. Um, the extreme difficulty that I've discovered that was faced as um, Saeed particularly was trying to share this story with the world. Um, there was a German TV crew that came and filmed everything and then on the day of release the airing was cancelled and the showing was prohibited. Uh, there was a BBC documentary that was scheduled to be made and mysteriously all the plans were cancelled. An Oscar winning director produced an outstanding film called Tigers uh, all on the story but again like good luck getting hold of it. I'm so passionate to share this story on here because I just find that that moment the salesman and the doctor shared together in that room at that time was so profound. Because I think so often we think of mission as having to go somewhere else when so often it's about being where we are, in our jobs, in our homes, in our families, in our communities. I just I firmly believe that Diamond's actions help to end so much injustice and bring about the kingdom of God in that country and others. And I just hope and pray that I'm attentive and present enough to my life to do the same wherever and whenever God leads me. So on that note, we're going to rejoin Phil Wall and Daniel Strickland who are going to continue to unpack further for us the vow of mission in our everyday. Over to them. So the mission um, vow, um, and also we struggled with sort of the right name for this one too, yeah. didn't we? But we did know that the life of Jesus is characterized by a bias for the poor. I mean, yeah. his life was uh, on purpose getting in the way uh, so he could uh, intentionally posture his life to see the outcast, the folks who didn't belong, the ones who weren't welcome, whether they were you know, economically poor or they were ostracized or unwelcome in religious circles or, you know, whatever those, those, uh, those stereotypes were that Jesus lived a life of inclusion. And so the hand posture for that one we use is our hands outstretched. And I really love, I think Ian, uh, made that prayer up around, uh, the father, um, the prodigal father going out looking for the son saying you're welcome home you know I just I love that idea of going to the excluded you know the beautiful scripture where God says God puts the lonely in family and recognizing as disciples we literally are uh, the people who welcome the prodigals home uh, the excluded the lost whether they deserve it or not is that that open embrace to say we see you we're looking for you we're running to you you know we're going in your direction we're seeking you and uh, please come home. You know, I just, there's something so profound about a life that's postured that way. Yeah. I think the, um, we want to be really explicit um, also and say to people, hey, you, you know, it, a mission isn't for professionals. A mission isn't for religious types or vicars or, you know, whatever. We are all on mission. You know, I mean, the Blues Brothers is a great movie. And it was, but he was right. Yeah, we are on a mission from God. Absolutely. Right. Uh, and um, and of course the Salvation Army we had the same mission it's the band you know <laughs> we've got to get the band but, uh, but I think that's true I think it's a statement of truth we are on a mission absolutely and I think um, one of the great challenges uh, for many uh, folks particularly those that don't work for the church is to see their life through the lens of mission so I go to work every day as a teacher or as a banker or as a lawyer or I'm a, I'm a house parent or I'm someone who works in the community or whatever we, in what way is my life missional and um, I, we wanted to have this in there to help people to explore what that might mean for them. 
A, we're followers of Jesus, so as you say, we have an orientation towards the poor. That might mean you're a giver, that might mean you're an advocate, that might mean you write letters, that might mean you, you work in different environments. But for everyone, somehow, in some way, our lives are orientated towards the dispossessed in some way. Mm-hmm. But also seeing our lives mm-hmm. as missionary lives. Right. And of course, we, many of us have grown up in churches where we say, well, no, the missionaries are the people that are on the... You know, in many churches, you've got that map of the world and, and then there's a bit of red wool that goes from a pin uh, down to a photograph of, of you know, uh, a lovely family. And uh, and then there's, you know, people have gone here or there are people have gone through that college or been through that training or gone to that place. Whereas, as we understand the New Testament, anybody who says, I follow Jesus, is on mission. The only question is, what does that look like? And I think we, we want to provide a really creative and we hopefully a power, an empowering space for people to explore what that might mean for them to go to work or do what they do with the bulk of their time every day with a missionary focus that I am on a mission. And, um, I, think, and I think part of uh, our confusion around this is this dualism thing between ministry and work and, and vocation of work. So I think I have a job. I run a business. I run a very successful business. You know, it's great. That's my job. I hope I do my job well. I hope my clients are pleased with the work that I live in. That's my job. That pays my bills. That, you know, puts me in a community. My vocation actually is a little bit different to that. And I think lots of people sometimes get confused thinking that the vocation, that job need to be the same thing. It doesn't need to be the same thing at all. Um, I think uh, it's really interesting when we think about the Apostle Paul. And, um, you know, arguably, you know, the greatest, you know, uh, apostolic evangelist in the history of the church and um you know lots of the you know when you ask the people in theological classrooms i did a little while ago i said you know you know what were the names of the group that um the apostle paul first shared the gospel with and they came in all these different names of geographies and there's none of those they were called clients they were clients of his they bought tents from him because that was his job his vocation was preaching the gospel but his job was to sell tents that was his job and, of course, they wove together beautifully. Uh, and I think we, we want to try and find a place where, you know, it's easier for those that have gone on a vocational track in a denominational stream or whatever. That's great. We want you to think about what does it mean to be missional, not what does it mean to be a vicar or what does it, what does it mean to be truly missional in your life and get out of bed every day with that kind of intent. And for those that aren't in that space, i.e. the bulk of Christians around the world, you know, the vast majority of believers that have ever lived haven't been ministers, we're the people on the front line. We're the people uh, who are amongst people every single day who don't know Jesus. And in a country like mine, uh, the UK, where maybe five, six maximum, five, six percent of the country are actually followers of Jesus. For the vast majority of us, amongst our friends, we are probably the only Christian they know. Right. I had a phone call a few years ago from a friend of mine and I didn't realise he was ringing me. I didn't realise that because he left a message on my phone and he was really quite tearful on the phone. He took me a little while to work out who he was and his guy I care for a great deal and very tragically his wife at the time had, had been rushed to hospital with a brain tumour and so he's trying to explain what happened and, and everything else and I'm just listening to the message and at the end of the message he said this to me he said Phil I know you're on holiday and I'm sorry to trouble you but I had to ring you because you're the only person I know who prays mm. so please would you pray for my wife wow and that's true for the vast majority of Christians right. on the face of planet Earth for, for, mm. particularly in the western world we are quite possibly the only Christian that many of our friends know. So we need to be on a mission. Well, and you know, it's interesting too because we've convinced ourselves for some reason and it's a bit of a lie because if you live missionally, so if you're looking for opportunities to 
to live like Jesus and to present Jesus. I mean, the word Christian itself means little Christ. So we are meant to be like Jesus to the people around us. But we've kind of convinced ourselves that people are against us. So it puts us in a defensive posture when actually people, I don't, for the most part, people are not against us at all. They're looking for places where someone will pray for them, like an opportunity. So we recently... Uh, you know, went to the LA Convention Center. We set up an anti-human trafficking booth at a sex show there. And um, the people that were part of that, putting that on, it was all of their first time. And they just were like terrified in many ways, like, ah, like what will we do? And how will we come across and how will this work out? And I I assured them it's all going to be great because I've done a whole bunch of them all around the world. And so I I trained them and then said, bye, I had to go to Hong Kong. (laughs) I was like, have a good weekend. And I came back and said, you know, how did it go? And they just like, I mean, they were like over them. They just were like, we could not believe, you know, there was, we had this prayer booth at the, at the uh, booth that we had with we this prayer station uh, for free words from God, you know, is how we sort of frame it. And they said there was just a lineup like halfway down the show of people waiting in line to get a word from God. And I said, is there anything in the booth we should have had that we didn't have? And they said, yeah, unanimously, they all said, yeah, we needed tissues, way more tissues. And they just recounted person after person after person they, they prayed with who just could not believe that God loved them, that he had a plan for them, that there was good news for them, that we didn't judge them, you know, that they, I mean, they carry so much shame. And so this team really, what they did in debrief was really repented for their own sense of like, these people won't be interested. Like we're, this is going to be dangerous. Like they're going to be closed. And we have these, same with our neighbors, same with like story after story after story of people who we've convinced ourselves don't want us or don't want Jesus or don't. And it, it took me so many years to, to figure out. I remember I coached a high school basketball team and uh, in a rural community. So we used to go on the road a lot in, in a bus and I would do my preach prep with them basically and say, okay, guys, what do you think of this? And I tell them the story and stuff. And I was telling the Easter story. And one of the students said to me, uh, I don't understand like why Jesus had to die. Like it makes no sense to me. And so we had this amazing conversation about why Jesus had to die in the atonement. And it struck me that when she asked me those questions and I got back and I, I literally, I remember thinking, I've judged this entire generation as, as rejecting the gospel. And I didn't realize that actually they just have never heard the gospel. And I was so convicted because all, I mean, they've only had this like MTV version. And I, I realized that we had not, we have not postured ourselves to communicate the truth and or to be missional or to get in the way or to represent Jesus in the world and as a result people don't know so they're they're literally judging the church for what they think but they don't because uh, Christians aren't being missional they, they're not seeing Christ and so they're judging them on all the wrong they don't understand so I feel like it's it's such an important part of what it means to be a disciple what it means to follow Jesus is to represent him to people around us and and to be intentional about getting in the way uh, and seeing the people that are invisible in society. And... I think what's really exciting also is when you start to step into that place. Yeah. When you're saying, okay, Lord, I want to be missional. Yes. I, I, I want to put myself in a place whereby, for example, I may get a chance to either pray with someone yeah. or tell someone I'm praying for or even share my story, yeah. how those opportunities come about. Mm-hmm. I, I think I use, I've gone through a really interesting theological shift as a share of a Jesus story over the last few years. I think what I used to believe was my job as a missionary was to go and find lots of creative ways to start people thinking about God. You know? And then I read a quote from uh, I, um, I, one of the church founding fathers 
who had many beliefs I would fundamentally disagree with, particularly around women. Uh, but uh, he said this. He said, we worship a God who is constantly lapping at the shores of people's lives. Mm. And I've reflected on that a great deal. And I think my theology shifted quite dramatically from a place of saying, I need to go out there into that world and try and start as many conversations and get into it with all these people so they might start to consider God. Mm-hmm. To the place I find myself now, completely different saying, God, every, for you to be the God of the Bible, every microsecond of every single day, there cannot be one second of any human being's existence where you are not seeking to win them and will you just will you seek to win them and woo them to yourself. Mm-hmm. And if there is, you are not the God of the Bible. Right. And believing that, mm-hmm. my question now as I seek to live authentically for Jesus and missional life is not, hey, how do I get into conversation? My first mm-hmm. question is, what are you doing, God? Right. How are you seeking to win and woo this person to right. yourself? Because right. I know you are. Yes. I just got to figure out what it is. And you do that yeah. by asking questions. Yes. And that is just such a much more confident place. Mm-hmm. Because, you, you, you know, you're getting on board with the winning team, mm-hmm. you know, you're building what's already been built, mm-hmm. and you're just bring, coming into their story with your story at a particular moment in time. Mm-hmm. And it's just so freeing mm-hmm. and so confidence-building to come at it from that direction. So mm-hmm. I would say my, you know, I think I'd have probably said, you know, well, this is the really committed mission mindset mm-hmm. I used to have. I need to be out there doing all this thing. I think this new fresh mindset or insight or whatever you want to describe it is much more missional. Mm -hmm. Because actually what I'm doing is I'm finding out what has God already done Mm -hmm. and how do I get on board with that. And that's really, really exciting. Which is a lot more about partnership with kingdom than agenda-driven sort of push your truth on people. Remember people Michael sense said, that, don't they? They sense yeah, that. They know, like, you know, big loudmouth like me, you know, they know they, mm. you got an agenda, you got an agenda, you say, well, actually, my agenda is first to listen, let me yeah. understand. Yeah. Tell me your story, where you at? Yeah. Yeah, Sorry I had someone say. one time come running up to me, like, you know, knowing who I was and just sort of said, I don't believe in God. And I just said to them, I'll be sure to let them know. You know? It was just, it was just, they were like, oh, like, I was, I was just like, I'll let them know. Like, what do you want, man? Oh, great. <laughs> Knock yourself out, yeah. Fantastic. And uh, Michael Frost once said, I heard him say recently that, you know, the question we really should all be asking is, are we living a questionable life? In other words, when people look at our lives, are they like, what? You know, what is that? Like, what is that? And I I was like, that's such a great way to frame it. I think that's, if I could describe missional living, it's a questionable life. It's like, why? You're friends with whom? You know, and I just, I love that. I delight in this idea of inviting you know, normal people over for dinner and having a homeless friend who's hanging out there at the same time. And, you know, just instantly their lives have expanded. You know, they don't, they've never even thought of, you know, they've, they've, they've seen them from a distance and now it's like, wow, they're friends with somebody, yeah. but they never would be friends. You cross social spectrums and all kinds of things. Is this, is your life questionable? Is it like, are people going, huh, what is that about? And that's, I feel like that's a good, rather than this agenda of like, I have to be you know, on some sort of uh, mission from God, intentional agenda driven. It's this beautiful posture of God's at work in the world and we're partnering with him. I mean, Jesus lived the most questionable life of all. Everybody was like, what are you doing? Everybody, even the disciples are like, ah, we just, what's going on? So I feel like that beautiful idea of living a questionable life, you know. Well, he posed more questions than he preached, didn't he? And I think maybe Frosty, he's quoting that. I can't remember the quote, but he said, you know, we must live our lives in such a way that they make no sense at all unless God exists. Right. Maybe that's where you're going. But I think that's, right. the, that's the, the essence of mission is yeah. living a life that makes no sense to anybody at yes. all unless God exists. Yes. Such is the provocation of how we live. That's great. That's beautiful. That's about worth living. Mission. 
do it.